thank God that I don't have to follow it with my own words. I thank God that He has given us His word, and I don't have to use mine, because God's word is never uh, too much. We always need more and more of that. God's word gives us life, and uh, it is my prayer that today this is what God's word is going to accomplish. So if you have your Bibles, please um, please click or turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Verses 45 through 57. It's on the screen. And uh, if you're there, let's read it, and then uh, we'll pray, and we'll immediately talk about it, okay? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Blessed be the reading of God's um, eternal word, and may he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness that is poured out on us in Jesus Christ. I thank you that your word comes to us and it cleanses us. I thank you that because of Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sin. I thank you that you preside over the affairs of man and not one leaf falls off the tree if it's not your will. I thank you that you 
are in total and absolute control of everything that happens in your purpose shall stand. Nothing will thwart your plan. And I thank you for the comfort that it brings us. I pray that today your word would be welcome into our hearts and that we would know you. We would know you and love you more than we've ever had. And I pray all these things in the name of the Redeemer who died on the cross to save sinners. Amen. Amen. So today, I, I, I don't think we have a whole lot uh, to do. There's not a whole lot of work to be done. Um, although, if I did have a lot of time, I would do five or six sermons on this text, but I chose to do one only. I'll give you a brief overview of the whole thing. We're going to talk about uh, the whole portion of, of the scriptures that we're working with today. We'll talk about it briefly, uh, give you a, a better scenario of how uh, the gravity of what's happening here, and then I'm just going to go back and we'll point out some, mount, some, some highlights, some high points of this text, and I pray that God would help us to welcome all of this in, in our hearts. Uh, and apply it to our lives so that we love Him and live and enjoy Him uh, to the fullest. What's happening here is that the chapter starts with Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, being very, very sick. chapter begins with Jesus receiving a message. Your dear friend is going to die. He is very, very sick. Lazarus' sisters, whom Jesus loved as well, sent him a message. Jesus was away. And Jesus had to rush to go and see Lazarus. After all, Jesus has demonstrated that he has power over sicknesses. He has healed people before. So the sisters, knowing that they sent for Jesus, and Jesus has to rush to arrive at Bethany where Lazarus lives. And what happens is that Jesus, upon hearing the message that Lazarus was about to die, he was deathly ill, fatally ill, Jesus decides to stay where he is for two more days. And Jesus never arrives. Lazarus dies. Jesus decides to arrive in Bethany when Lazarus is, has been dead, very dead, really, really dead. For four days. Dead and buried for four days. Jesus arrives after a brief interaction with the sisters, one at a time. He asks, where have you laid him? And he brings everybody. They all walk to the tomb, which is just, just a cave with a big stone that seals the opening. And the body has been there for four days. And he says, roll away the stone. And the sister, is, is, now she's concerned because this is cruel. This is, I mean, this is going to be embarrassing. No one wants to see a rotten body decomposing. This is their beloved brother. This is Jesus' beloved friend, close friend. Why is Jesus doing this? Now, there are many of the Pharisees, many of the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem, they have come over there to, to, to comfort the sisters, to comfort the family, to mourn the death of Lazarus. We also know that their tradition, especially because they, had, they, had, they, they were wealthy, it appears, 
We know that their tradition was to hire professional mourners, people that would be wailing and crying, mourning the death of a loved one. The text says that many of the Jewish leadership, they were there from Jerusalem. When Mary hears that Jesus is there, Mary gets up and and the Jews that came to comfort her, they all go to the tomb. So we can imagine that Bethany not being a terribly huge city. It was just a village. We can imagine that probably most of the people that lived there, was, they were just present there. There was a crowd in front of this cave with a stone. That they, 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 it was their, the tomb for, for the wealthy. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. Now, one of the sisters says, the body is decomposing. There is an odor now. What are you doing? And Jesus Christ, using nothing but His omnipotent, all-powerful voice, He resurrects Lazarus from the dead. One command, one order to a dead body. Lazarus, come forth! And life is restored to a body that has been dead for four days and is already decomposing. Decay has started. God's voice creates what it commands. This happens in broad daylight. Everybody sees it. And the Bible says that many, in our passage today, that Many of the Jews that were there, they saw this and they believed in Him. But some went and told the Pharisees, this is what's happening. Pharisees, they, they're part of the Jewish national leadership and they get concerned. Their concern is, does this man really come from God? Is this man really our Messiah? Because we need to investigate it. Because if He is the Messiah, we're going to follow Him. Is that their concern? Unfortunately, that is not their concern. Their concern is, this man performs many, many signs. This is getting dangerous. So they call into session a a council. This is the council, what it was called, the Sanhedrin. Which was a group of 71 men that was ruled, I mean, the president was was the, 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 the high priest. And these 71 men, they basically ruled the Jewish nation. This is the supreme court. This is supreme high court. It doesn't get any higher than that. There is nothing else in their religious system that would go above this council. They rule over the Jews all over the globe. Their mandates were binding to all Jews everywhere. And now this is becoming official. This is this conflict between Jesus and the authorities, the Jewish authorities, escalates. Now this is not just a matter of mob violence. This is not just a matter of zealous Pharisees wanting to stone this Jesus whom we think blasphemes, making himself equal to God. 
were one with God. Now this is official. This is the Supreme Court, the judges ruling on a matter. They get together and they're talking about this man. Someone has the high priest, which is kind of the president of the whole thing. He says, you guys don't get it. We can put an end to this right now. The solution is let's kill him. Because if we don't, people are going to start crowning this man. They're going to treat him and regard him as a king. And we know that there can be no other king but Caesar. Rome will retaliate. And they're going to take both our temple, our place, and and our position, our livelihood. They're going to crush our identity as a nation. And the Romans had a very special, bloody way of crushing identities of nations. They knew that and they were afraid. They were concerned that the Romans would see this and come and destroy them. And it is said that the very thing that they were willing to kill the Son of God to protect their position, their temple, their religious sacrificial system, their Jewish identity as they saw, they ended up killing the Son of God. But the destruction of the temple, the destruction of their identity happened basically four decades later when the Roman army marched through Jerusalem and completely obliterated the city, completely destroyed everything, especially their temple, which was the basis of their existence as a nation. Everything revolved around their religious system, and they lost everything. They saw Jesus as a threat, when Jesus in reality was a savior. But they could not see it. They were so blinded by it. And they make it official. They issue Jesus' death warrant. If anybody sees this man, you need to let us know. Because we need to arrest him. Jesus now is officially a wanted man. Regarded as an outlaw. Because now Jesus sees that his hour is rapidly approaching. But he knows that it hasn't arrived yet. Jesus has things to accomplish. And his death is on schedule. Everything is under control and moving rapidly to the culmination of his death. This is about the same time of the year that we are in now. And I think it is not by coincidence. Jesus is days away from being murdered by man, killed by God. We'll talk about it in a little bit. So Jesus, knowing that his hour has not arrived yet, Jesus goes to the wilderness. He gets away from Jerusalem to let things cool, cool down a little bit. He doesn't want to be proclaimed as a king. He doesn't want to die immediately because he's going to die as the unblemished, spotless Passover lamb. There are many Jews from all over. They are there already to purify themselves for the festivities, for the holiday, for the celebration of the Passover. They don't want to have any, any risk 
of uncleanness, being unclean for the ceremony. So they are, they, they've landed in Jerusalem already. And there is talk. Because they arrive there, there is all this talk about Jesus being a wanted man. And Jesus is famous now. Thousands of people that believed him. Thousands of people that believed in him, that saw his miracles. And they want to see him, so they're wondering, is he going to come? Is he not going to come? What is he going to do now? So Jesus is the talk of the town in this very important celebration. Now, this is basically the broad general picture of what is happening. This is much more than mob violence. He's a wanted man. He is going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. Now it comes from the Supreme Court. This is a federal ruling. And Jesus is a wanted man. Now, I want you to look at, let, let's take a look at verses 45 and 46. And I want you to look at the word many. First, this is one of the first things we're going to talk about. Because Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. Had been dead for four days. Jesus didn't do it on a, in a corner. Jesus didn't do it hiding. He did it in front of everybody in broad daylight. One command, a dead body receives life, gets up from his own grave and walks out. And the text says that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, namely raising Lazarus from the dead in broad daylight, after being dead and buried for four days, many believed in him. You've got to be kidding me, many. You know what many means? That some didn't. What else does he have to do for people to believe in him? I mean, how do you even explain that? I mean, I've seen people explaining away a lot of things. Even, even in the pages of scriptures, we see God speaking from heaven. And people that do not want to believe, they'll say, Oh, I think it's just a storm coming. I think it was the clouds that they're too heavy with water. They just hit each other. And somehow we heard, this is my beloved son. Maybe that's what it is. But a man, a, a man that has been dead for four days and buried and stinking already and decaying already. Jesus raises him from the dead and many believed in him. Awesome. But some don't. I mean, this is incredible. This serves to, to let us know that the problem, and Scripture bears witness to that, but this is, a, this is a clear illustration that man, sinners, will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. According to Romans 1, this is what sinners' hearts do. Sometimes, we think that the problem for people not coming to Christ is a lack of evidence. And I do acknowledge that people have, a lot of people have honest questions. Things that troubled them. The problem of evil. The problem of eternal punishment. I get that. I get that people have honest questions and they have things that confuse them and trouble them and they need answer so they can work it out. I get that. But you can give people all of the evidence in the world 
The text in Romans says that man will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1 says that everything about God, His eternal nature and attributes, they are perceived since the beginning through the things that have been created. We look at creation. We say, there has to be a creator. There has to be a creator. And we perceive His goodness, His mercy, His holiness. Those are His attributes. His eternality. Whether we suppress it or not, whether we admit it or not, that is the testimony that Scriptures bear. But people will even look at a dead man that has been resurrected from the dead and they'll say, no. No, that can be. That cannot be. I love my sin too much to, to acknowledge that. Because if this Jesus that claims to be God, if he in fact, this is not a, tri- a, a trick, but if he in fact has just demonstrated that he has power over life and death, he has power over a dead body, and he has power to give life where life does not exist, now he just backed up all of his claims. And I have to surrender to him. I have to repent. I have to repent of my religion. I have to repent of my sin. I have to give up my comforts that maybe I got in ways that are not as holy as I like people to think. I have to give my life to Him. I'm just not ready to do that. I love my stuff. I love my stuff too much to give it all up. So that's just... This is the beginning of what we see. I mean, these people, they were just so in love with this world. They were so in love with the things they had that they were willing to deny the message, to kill the Son of God, to protect their things. They feel threatened. This man performs way too many signs. We need to do something about it. They call this gathering the rulers of the nation, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders of the people. They get all, they're all together. This is an official meeting now. Let's make it legal. Enough playing around with this Jesus. What do they say? Why do they feel threatened? If we allow, verse 48, if we allow him to go raising the dead like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone. Jesus is a good man. He has traveled around doing only good. He never wronged anybody. Why is it so bad that everyone would believe in Jesus? Why is it so evil? Why is he a threat? There's much expectation of a king. People were already wanting to crown him as a king. Their rationale makes sense. If people enthrone Jesus, if they welcome him in town saying, Hosanna, welcome is the king, the one who comes in the name of God, if they all believe in him, There can be no king, but Caesar, Caesar will come. Rome will come, and they'll kill us. They'll take 
our temple, they'll take our nation, they'll take our identity, they'll take our jobs, our status. But Jesus had given them unshakable, unquestionable proof that He was who He had been claiming to be. Jesus is no con man. He's no spiritual con man. He's no charlatan. What charlatan can raise the dead? Can stop a storm? Can multiply bread? Can heal people with one word from miles of distance? What charlatan is so compassionate to broken sinners? Can heal people that have been blind from birth or had not walked in 38 years? Jesus would literally walk up to a man who could, had been lame forever, for 38 years. And he would say, get up and walk. Take your bed and walk. Let's go. And, and that just happened. He is no charlatan. And now, there is, I mean, this is an un- unprecedented miracle. Raising somebody from the dead like that. Body that was decomposing already. But they will not accept Jesus' evidence, Jesus' demonstration of his deity. They search the scriptures thinking that in them they find eternal life, but it is the very scripture that they searched that bore witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes and proves he is the promised one, and they reject him outright reject Him. Why? Because they feared losing their stuff. They feared losing their earthly comfort more than they desire to see God's kingdom come. God help us. God help us. I know this is not the main thrust of of this passage. I, I know that. But I don't want us just to walk through it and and forget about it either. God, help us to not be this people. A people that never take any risk. That never go out of our comfort zone. That never want to love people at the risk of being criticized or ostracized or persecuted. It's almost embarrassing to talk about persecution like here, 2012 L.A. There's no bullets flying around. But can we please, can we please beg God to not let us be people that are more afraid of losing our comfort than people that are desiring, desiring to see God's kingdom on earth? I mean, this is their sin, but you know we're not above it. I know I'm not above it. Let's be honest. I mean, you need to talk to God. I need to ask God, am I that guy? Am I that guy? Why, why am I so in love with my stuff? I, I know I don't get to keep any of this. This is not even home. Why am I not taking risks? Why am I watching people's lives 
broken because I know they need Jesus. I know that there is a soul that is affected by sin there. And I'm watching it. And I'm not willing to put myself out there, to, to maybe take a risk to bring God's kingdom into to their lives. Because maybe they're going to, you know, they're not going to poke me on Facebook anymore. That's stupid. It's literally insane. It's literally insane that we try to build relationships with people and let's build a relationship outside of any conversation regarding Christ, any eternal, any conversation of eternal importance. Let's just help them, but maybe, you know, we can help them without preaching the gospel. Let's just preach the gospel by doing charity. Well, that backs up the gospel, but doing charity is not the gospel. People don't get saved because you give them stuff. Okay? People get saved because you preach the gospel to them. Because they listen to the gospel and God does a work through the gospel and gives them a new heart and the gospel is welcome in them. It's absolutely, it's absolute insanity to think that, you know, to, to work to make people more comfortable temporally while we know that they're plunging, they're walking into an eternity without Christ. Earthly comfort. Provide them earthly comfort knowing that they're going to an eternity of misery. That's insane. And we do do that. We do run the risk of doing that. It's a temptation. No one likes conflict. I don't like conflict. I don't want to be rejected. I think you guys are not walking around looking for fights either. But what's more important? To be loving enough to put yourself out there and let people know that God loves them and if they come, if they only come, they can be forgiven and cleansed and restored and redeemed and experience an eternity of joy, but also let them know that they're sinners and God stands in opposition to sin because He's righteous. He's a just judge and He cannot wipe their sin under the rug because He's a just judge. Why would you say, no, but God is loving as well, but you would hate to have a, a judge that would let crime go unpunished. Why would you want to have a God ruling the universe like that? That is loving. It might be tough love, but that's, that is loving. And it's sad to say that sometimes we, we shy away from that because we are afraid. We need to take more risks as a church and as individuals. As a church and as individuals. Because maybe, perhaps, God will grant them repentance. Maybe. He has granted you repentance, hasn't He? Maybe God will do that too. I don't want to be the people that fear losing their earthly comfort more than we desire to see God's kingdom on earth. Amen? God help us. So Caiaphas has a solution. Let's kill this guy. 
We can put an end to this now. He's going to come for... I mean, he likes to disturb our, our feasts. He likes to disturb our Jewish national holidays. He's done it before in the Festival of Light, Feast of Dedication. He's done it. You know, the tabernacles. He ruined the whole thing. He's coming... No, let's put signs everywhere Jesus wanted. Let's tell people, and if they, if they know, they're going to be accomplices as well. If they know where he is and they don't tell us, let's put the fear in people as well. Let's look for him and kill him. Now, they're so caught up in this world, so in love with the things of this world, that they're willing to kill the Son of God to protect everything they have, but they, they don't see that it's all in vain. Like I said, in 40 decades later, the Roman army destroys everything anyways. No matter what it is, we do not get to keep any earthly riches. We as a people of God, as the people of God, we don't belong here. Stop being attached to all this stuff. We don't belong here. We're passing through. And the mandate is that as we're passing through this earth, we bring God's kingdom wherever we go. This is not our home. Home is the new Jerusalem that God is preparing for us. We're here to bless people, to start restoration, to enjoy God to the fullest because eternity has started now as His redemption has come into our lives, as His kingdom has come to our lives. That's what we're here for, to spread His kingdom as we live for His glory and our joy. As we love each other with the love of Christ in front of people, in front of a world that is perishing, in front of those who don't know Him. We're not here to get attached to stuff. To gather riches and idols and achievements, whatever, I mean, whatever, your, whatever your poison is. It might not be money, it might be, even ministry can be an idol. My goodness. It's not, God has so much more for you. He has so much more for you. You don't get to keep any of this. And who cares? He's got much more for us. My father's house, there are many mansions. No eye has ever seen, no ear has heard. What God has prepared for those, for those who love Him. I mean, we talk, we're talking a sea of crystal, streets of gold. Bring it on, right? I mean, it's, it's beauty. We're talking a world without the brokenness of sin, the sadness of sin, the misery of sin, the effects of sin, and even the presence of sin. In the presence of the living God forever. A new phone? Are you kidding me? Gadgets? I mean, I like gadgets. You know me. But you... Uh, I mean, there's no comparison. It's all going to burn. And I don't even care. We shouldn't care. There's so much more that God has prepared for us. So much more. They couldn't see it. They saw Jesus as a threat. They couldn't see that Jesus came to save the nation, not to destroy it. Not to destroy it. Now, 
I want to read the next three verses. Verses 51, 2, and 3. Because I think we're going to spend the bulk of our time here. I think this is the thrust of the passage, the main thrust of the passage. I think it's incredible what the Apostle John is telling us here. I think it's huge. But I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it my best shot. Caiaphas decides to kill him. The plan is accepted. Let's do it. They issue the death warrant. And he says, let's start with 50 actually. He says, you don't know anything. Let's just kill this man. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. And then comes a stunning interpretation of the Apostle John, who is the mouthpiece of God, on par with the prophets of the Old Testament. He is inspired by God, and nothing that he is saying in this book contains any error or can even fail. This is what the Apostle John says about Caiaphas' statement of Jesus dying for the nation. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. You know what prophecy is? The words of God coming through the lips of man. That's what prophecy is. John just said that he prophesied, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Wow. I mean, have you seen, have you noticed, have you heard the magnitude, the gravity of what John has just said? Caiaphas had an intent. His words do not, need any, do not need any interpretation. His words are pretty clear. His rationale is sound. His logic is sound. Jesus is a threat. We don't like Him. We have our positions. We have our status. We have a good gig going on here. We have a system, a religious system that we do not want to lose. If Jesus becomes the king of the people, if the Jews, if the Jewish nation starts saying, proclaiming that Jesus is the king, the Romans will come in retaliation, they'll kill us. They will obliterate our nation like they have done with other nations. We have a semi-autonomous thing, a legal thing going on here. We have some liberty to worship in a way that we worship. They haven't made us bow to their king, to their gods, to their idols, to their statues. You know, we can do our sacrifices. The only thing that, that they kind of don't let us do is, is to kill the criminals. We have to turn them over to them. Other than that, you know, there's oppression, but we're doing our thing here. We don't want to lose that. Jesus is a threat, we'll kill him. Simple rationale, isn't it? It, does, it barely needs any explanation, any exposition. John, the apostle, the mouthpiece of God, as he is writing the account, he stops it. And he gives us an interpretation of what has been just said. And the interpretation is, he, Caiaphas, did not say that of his 
own accord, but he prophesied. John has just said that prophesying, the words of God, God is speaking. So there are two intentions here. Caiaphas clearly had his intention, which was to kill Jesus, and it was wicked. Clearly. But God had His intention as well. And these are the words of God. And God has just said that it is better for you that Jesus Christ dies for the nation. God has just said that it is better that His own Son, His one and only unique Son, eternal Son, dies for you. These are the words... In the human level, these are the words that sealed Jesus' death. These are the words that got Jesus to that cross eventually. To that mockery of a trial that He had. John has just told us that these are the words of God Himself. These words came from heaven. God has inspired these words from the pen of John and from the mouth of Caiaphas. God spoke. I want my son killed. And that is better. This is better than any other plan. There's nothing better than that for you. John goes ahead and says, you know, not only for the nation, but together into one. The children of God that are scattered around the globe. Revelation says that people from all over, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, He has gathered into one. And it is God who says that. Two actors, two people saying it. God, same words, God is saying, it is better. It's a good thing that my son dies. Caiaphas is saying, I'm going to kill him so I protect my thing. Two wills in the same words, same lips. What John is doing right now is opening the curtains of heaven and giving us a peek on how God runs His universe. John has just shown us explicitly what is the testimony of scriptures that happen with every event in human history. God's, namely, God's supernatural superintendence of everything that happens and how everything that happens interact and cause and impact every other thing that happens, and all of the events that will come as a result of these events, from the beginning of creation to the end of eternity, if I can say that. Everything meticulously planned and executed by the sovereign God of the universe. This is not a moment of sovereignty. Is your head hurting yet? This is not a moment of sovereignty. This is God's experience 
eternally. He didn't look at this and say, I need a plan B. He didn't, I didn't even mean it to be funny. He's not standing outside of circumstances saying, I'm a specialist in turning bad things into good things. I'm going to turn this. I'm going to have my chance. I'm going to turn this. If you allow me to work here, I'll turn this. I know it's a tragedy. I know it's a mess. I'm, I couldn't see it coming. I had a good prediction. I'm God after all. But I am bound by a force higher than myself, uh, apparently, that I couldn't prevent that. I'm weeping with you. But I'm going to turn this. I'm going to use this for your good. Right now it's just a mess, but I'm going to turn this into good. I'm going to change your situation. Oh, it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. God is accomplishing things in the lives of His children. He didn't just announce what was happening. He planned it. He planned it. Think that the words that got Jesus killed are the words that God said. And He judges it to be good. God wanted Jesus killed. And that was better. And that was better. God killing Jesus. Now, are you saying, I think I just stated that, are you saying that God killed Jesus? God killed Jesus? Yes. Yes, I'm normally quick. I normally say, use that language, that terminology. I'm quick to use it. And uh, through the counsel of godly men, of, of, of smarter, wiser brothers, um, I have learned that there has to be some, some wisdom here when we say that God killed Jesus. Because the word kill does bring false connotations that cannot be applied to God. It does bring negative connotations, sinful connotations, that killing is, is negative. So we need to clarify things. It is strong language, and it is true, biblically, that God killed Jesus. The Bible, the only reason why we should use it, use language like that, is that the Bible talks about it very graphically. It's just, just a little bit of it in Isaiah 53, verse 4. We esteemed Him, Jesus, stricken, smitten by God. God, <clears throat> God smote Him. Verse 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity, the, the approval of wickedness or willing, wicked sin. God laid all on Jesus and we all know how the Lord feels about wickedness and iniquity. Not only doing sin, but approving and loving sin and wickedness. God laid it. The text says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was whose will? To crush him? It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. 
God smote him. God grieved him. God crushed him. God did it. God did it. And I think John is just saying it in another way. It is better that he will die for the nation. God did not merely predict it. He planned it. He's not outside of it all, but he's in it in every detail. What does it even matter? Why, why do I keep talking about the sovereignty of God and how he predicts and, and he plans everything and everything? That Doesn't it sound like an empty discussion? Some will say, no, God has his hands bound, bound up. He, he doesn't want things to happen. All pain comes from, from the evil one and from our sin. You know, God just allows us to do because he feels bad in interfering and changing, transforming your will. And then some would say, no, God is sovereign overall. Why would, would we debate this? It sounds like a, an empty debate. It's endless and never helped anybody. Uh, the only reason why I'm willing to fight for this is that to believe that I believe that to believe that God has His hands bound up and He is outside of the events in your life waiting for a chance to change it, I think that steals your joy. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to feel like a victim of circumstances. Because you know what's going to happen? And I don't wish that for you. But we live in a broken world. What's going to happen is that you're going to be in a very messed up situation. And it's going to hurt. Some of you may be in one now. Where if you just look at it, it's just a mess. My health is messed up. My, my child is messed up. I didn't do anything for my child to go astray, okay? I didn't do anything for my marriage to be wrecked. It just is. I didn't do anything for, to my, for my finances to be in shambles. I didn't do anything to lose my job. I didn't do anything to lose my health. It wasn't my fault. It just happened. I don't have any hidden sin, Okay? I don't have any hidden sin. I struggle open, in the open, and then a hurricane came and killed all my children, my cattle, my house. I don't have anything. Now I'm sick. I have, I have all these boils all over my body. I don't have a family. My wife is yelling at me, telling me to curse my God. That's the testimony of Job. God was orchestrating everything. He wasn't waiting outside, trying to change things. He was accomplishing something that is blessing us to this day in the lives of His redeemed people, of His children for eternity. He was accomplishing so much more than Job could ever imagine. But he had one assurance, and that was that his Redeemer lived. Now, when it hurts and it's not your fault, you don't know what's happening. You're going to be in a very messed up situation. And if you look at it thinking that God didn't have anything to do with it and He wants to just change, it, change things around, you are just a victim of the circumstances. And re it's, it's true, there is some hope because God is very powerful. Maybe He can change things. Maybe He even will. But at the moment, it's just unfair. It's just messed up. People sin against you and you didn't make them do it. It just hurts. So, what do you do? 
if you trust that God is in it, you know that He's orchestrating every breath you take, everything that is happening. He is bringing that into your life to accomplish His good purposes in your life. Now, you're not a victim of the circumstances, but you are an object of His transforming, sanctifying love. That sounds very different to me, one and the other. You are an object of His love that is being purified through fire. Yes, through trial and tribulations. But you are being conformed to the image of Christ daily. And there's nothing better than that. If God is in control, this is what is happening. You can trust Him. Now, what is it that God says? God planned and executed this whole mess in which Jesus finds himself, right? Doesn't excuse the wickedness of Caiaphas, of Judas who betrayed him, of Pontius Pilate that had his life in his hands and didn't save him, of the mob, the crowd that said crucify him. It doesn't change anybody's wickedness. It doesn't change their guilt, God's punishment over it. But what it does tell us is that even in the wickedness of man, God will accomplish His good purposes. His holy purposes. Not even the wickedness of man can thwart the plan of God to redeem His children and restore creation and punish the guilty. He did it through the blood of His Son. How did He do it? If you forgot anything I've been saying, remember substitution. Oh, what a precious word. This is at the core of the gospel. This is at the core. This is the heart of Christianity. If you're ever in a bind, you can't remember what it is, you get nervous and you can't explain the faith, remember substitution. Jesus in my place, right where I belonged, on that cross. And me, sitting at the table with the Father because He has paid my sin and I have been given the perfection and holiness of His life. It's substitution. It's Jesus in our place and we in His place. It's better that one die for the nation. And Jesus died not only for the nation, not only for Israel, which I just have to say it because it's in the text. I'm not going to go into it now. But I believe that there is one day in which the whole nation will come as a nation to Christ. I think His covenant is irrevocable. And one day, for now there's a partial hardening in them, but one day they're coming. They're coming to their Messiah. So Jesus died for the nation. He also died for Gentiles that live all over the world. Chapter 10, verse 16, He includes you and me, or 
at least the majority of us here, when he says, I have other sheep from other folds. And clearly the fold that he's talking in chapter 10, there's no debate there, is the Jewish fold and the folds outside the Jewish nation. Outside of Jewish, not being Jews. I have sheep from another fold. And he's gathering them. And that includes you and I here in, in America. Being gathered into one. Redeemed by Christ. By His blood. And He's doing that. But He's doing that very specifically. I want you to see that He's saying together the children of God. He is talking about people that have not come to faith yet as the children of God. Now, that by no means implies that people are children of God without without ever coming to Christ, and they will be saved without ever coming to Christ. That is not the testimony of John, the testimony of the whole Bible, the testimony of this book. That is not, it cannot, that cannot be implied. This is not what John is saying. But he refers to people that God sees that they will be my children. And I'm, and Jesus says, I'm dying to go gather them, specific people, because we know that not every human being from all nations are coming to Christ, correct? But He is bringing, plucking out of their sin, specific people from all over the globe. And He is gathering them into one, into one nation, the Christ nation. He's doing that. Now, why am I saying this? Because I want you to feel this morning His love, the love of God that is the only thing that breaks the rebellion of sinners. It's not evidence that does it. It's His love. Sometimes through evidence. That's true. Sometimes through answers. But it is His love. His saving love. If you're His, I want you to feel His love specifically. Not in general for the world, which He does, but His specific love for you. If you are in Him, He has conquered your rebellion. His love has brought you to Him. His love has raised you from the dead. His love has awakened you. His love has opened your eyes to see His beauty. His love has cleansed you from the guilt of sin that you both committed and have been committed against you. He has cleansed you and that was done by His love. His love has brought you to Him and His love will sustain you you eternally and nothing can pluck you out of his hand and heart i want you to know that you are loved by god particularly you are loved by god in christ Those that are not in Him, that are not His, that cannot say this, that, that say, I, I don't know Him. I haven't trusted in Him for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm not even sure I am that sinner. His love is so unthinkable, unfathomable, that He receives sinners with arms open wide daily. He is gathering them into one people. Every day, His invitation is always there. 
Come unto me, all of you who are weary, burdened, heavy laden, tired, depressed, guilty of your sin. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. That invitation stands over all sinners who hear this message. And it's always a good day to come to Him because He's always waiting. He's always ready to receive sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. And He has His arms open wide. He never rejects a broken heart. That's wild that a holy God would do that. I'll kill my son. So now the punishment is taken care of. You want... You want to come? You can come. You can be my son. I put my enemies. I put my son in the place of my enemies so I can have my enemies as my sons and daughters redeemed and restored forever in my family. Last but not least, I need to run. I'm out of time. Substitution gives you victory over accusation of the enemy of your soul and your Guilty conscience. When Satan tells you, you dirty, rotten sinner, you don't deserve, who do you think you are? Look at what you've done. And he's dirty. He'll even bring it graphically to your mind. And he does that. He is the accuser of the brethren. When he does that, you can look at, look at him right in the face. And you can say, get out of here. Jesus has died and taken all of the punishment that I deserve. Get out of here, Satan. When your guilty, unbelieving conscience condemns you, because if God has said, I forgive you, who are you to say, I don't forgive myself? Are you higher than God? That's arrogant. I'm not denying that that happens in our emotions. But we need to repent that it's sinful. When that happens, you can remember that word, substitution. It is better that Jesus died for the nation. It is better that He died for me. He took that punishment. And now there is no accusation against God's elect. Because it is God who justified Him. It is God who justifies them. And it is Jesus who rose from the dead for their justification. And you can live a life free from guilt. Experiencing conviction of the Holy Spirit. Allowing that in your heart to sanctify you. But never be under the condemnation of Satan and guilty, wrong conscience. And he did it by substitution. Remember that. That you are His. We're going to close in prayer now. And um, in a few minutes, we're going to be passing the elements for communion. We're going to celebrate His, celebrate and proclaim His life and death on our behalf. Proclaim His death to the world until He comes back. We're going to, we're going to break bread and, and drink the fruit of the vine. And this is something very dear. This is something that the Lord has done. He instituted that ritual, that rite, that practice. The night that He was betrayed, He took bread. And um, He asked His disciples, He broke bread, 
said, you know, when you eat of this, remember me. You know, his very close friends, his apostles, remember me. In the same way, he took the, the wine and he said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, have a solemn celebration. This became a practice throughout the ages. This became a practice of the church family, of people in community, people that are, that are uh, baptized believers, that have a, um, uh, a life with a community of, there is an affirmation of, of, yes, we are together in this. We have died to sin. It is Christ who lives in us now. And it's, it's kind of a, it's, it, it's a big deal. It's a very dear thing. And historically we have done it the way we found is that baptized believers would, would do this and members of a local church do it together. The Apostle Paul does give us some direction on, on, on celebrating, you know, to, on celebrating this, to, to examine ourselves. Let every man examine them, themselves and, and come to terms with the Lord. And one exhortation he gives us is that uh, we would not come and eat and drink of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning that you don't think you are sinful, you don't think you have all of that sin, or you don't think you, you need, you're in desperate need of His forgiveness. You don't think that you are... In, in, in danger of punishment or that his sacrifice actually accomplished all of that if that's where you find yourself you need to to have that worked out and then come or not come or not come if you think you you haven't trusted Christ if you think you you know uh, I've heard it I it's not necessarily my faith. I don't feel it in my heart. It's not. Um, it's fine. It, it's fine. Uh, but one advice from us that, you know, we love each other here. We love everybody, literally everybody present in this, in this room. We would ask that you would abstain from coming because the Apostle Paul says that if you eat and drink in that manner, you drink condemnation. You drink condemnation to yourself. Something that we take very seriously and that it should be taken seriously. And if not, if that's not where you're at, if, if you have embraced this faith, come, come and joy and celebrate this great thing that the Lord has done for us and enjoy His, His real presence in our midst through this celebration. Amen? Amen. So let's pray and then uh, we'll pass out the elements. Father, I thank You for Your love. Thank You for everything that You have accomplished and that You always accomplish. I thank You that You comfort us when You tell us that You are in total control of everything and that You are accomplishing Your purposes for for our good. Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. What a moment of joy. What a moment of joy, Lord. And I thank you for the privilege of being partaking of the table of the Lord, being in communion and fellowship with the Father and Son and each other.
be in our midst and sanctify us as we partake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.